Welcome, welcome back. It's part two of the Freedom Episodes. The Freedom Episodes. That's what we're going to call this little block here. Only liberty reigns here, Elliot. Jesus. Like America. Jesus Christ. No, we don't have to start the episodes hitting you. You know that, right? Yeah, but where's the fun in that? It's with us, dude. We are the fun where liberty reigns and freedom rings. Well, I'm having fun. And that's all that really matters, I think. Now, today is part two of our Liberty Hyde Bailey series. So for people that need to catch up, go check out part one. It's a banger. Yeah, that's in no way a synopsis or a summary of the previous episode, and you've caught no one up. So just listen to part one, I guess. You want me to give the milk away for free? What are we, communists? Really splitting our listeners up here with that one. Okay, so when we last left our our good friend Liberty, he was uh, pumping out books for the general public. He was studying native plants. He was uh, trying to figure out how domestication worked. He was kind of going beast mode. Yeah, he was basically trying to rewrite horticulture and fix agriculture and everything, we'll say, and then took a new position at Cornell with all that free time. Not a big deal. Exactly. So he was in his mid-30s and accomplished more than I ever will. So, yeah. He ultimately wanted to bring his interest and love of native crops or native plants to become part of the crops that we made part of our diet. He made the argument that this wasn't like an ecological argument that we might make today about like, well, it supports native habitat, yada, yada, yada. His argument was actually just that like native plants show better resilience. And basically many cultivated crops didn't survive here until they started getting hybridized with natives. So like, why not just center the native plants in our diets and kind of work our way outwards from the stock that already existed? Okay. And for our listeners, just a quick update. We're now the poor Bailey's almanac just from here on out. Exactly. Now, the 1890s, which is where we're kind of dipping our toes into, was a decade in which Bailey kind of like began to make horticulture within the image that he had. Now, speaking to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, he advocated for physiological studies of the plants which fruits came from, which is now the basis for our uh like those botanical drawings that you see like in every like yuppie upper class urbanite home. Like, you know what I'm talking about? And he spent basically a lot of time giving speeches in which he proposed a lot of things that he couldn't yet prove, but would turn out to be right over and over again. He like could sniff out what was going to happen or what science was, even if he couldn't prove it. For example, at one point he highlights concerns about how we understand invasive species today that there's going to be long-term negative consequences from these species that were highly successful. In 1893, he actually also proposed that certain fruit trees might not actually be self-fertile, which was kind of like an assumption for many trees at the time. And in this process, advocated for like more inter-variety cropping, that we had to pay attention to like flowering times to ensure like cross-pollination, which today seems kind of common sense, but before... It wasn't. So this guy was like a prophet, like with his third eye open, and it only saw vegetables. He was like Plantronomus. There you go. I like it. This dude would have hated permaculture. Oh, absolutely. Now, the running theme is he was involved in everything, but still managed to be fully invested in each of these subjects. So like he would have 30 interests, but he wouldn't just like half-ass them. He would be deep into them. Uh, And like his big points at this time were around like making academia like accessible through like college extension programs for farmers, working with rural communities, teaching them about science and plants and getting them excited about agriculture and getting city people to think about landscaping with native plants because they're beautiful and local and resilient and still doing all of his cool breeding shit that he was just obsessed with and writing books and studies and collecting plants and all, all that fun stuff he loved. On top of this, he was also trying to grow this horticultural program at Cornell. Um, so life must have been really different back then, clearly, because I don't understand how he had time for all of his side stuff, his like side quests, his main job, and his family. Yeah, I mean, his daughter followed in his footsteps, and 
I kind of think it was just because it was the only way she could talk to her dad. Man, that's brutal. But uh, speaking of his job, to to discuss kind of his significance in agriculture as an educational pursuit, in 1887, less than 50 students were enrolled in Cornell's agricultural program. By 1892, five years later, it was double, it was over 100, and uh, Bailey still expected the program to grow quite a bit more. And part of the reason why it didn't grow as fast as he would like is that Bailey, uh, once again, had a serious illness that was fixed by a guy named Dr. Robert T. Morris. Now, when I read this name, I was like, I know that name and I don't know why. So I did some searching. And it's also the same Robert T. Morris who would later write the book Nut Growing in 1921 and become a tree crops guy. Weird overlap. Is this like the same mysterious illness that he had in college? Uh, maybe. We never get a clear answer about what it is. But it is something that we see happen repeatedly in his life where he suddenly needs surgery. And the only description we've ever gotten or that I've ever read was that he passes out. No one ever did any significant research to try to figure out what this was. But the guy does live to his 90s. So, you know, wasn't that big of a deal, I guess. Yeah, fainting spells and surgery, which I'm pretty sure at the time was probably the, was what's it called, trepanation? They drill tiny holes in your skull mm-hmm. with a hand drill to relieve pressure on certain sides. Like it was probably something like that. I, I really don't know. I'm just making that up for the audience, but it fits in nicely it's here because it doesn't yeah. doesn't make sense. I, I don't understand what fainting spells you could have that would be fixed by an invasive surgery. So I, I don't know. But it sounds like he was stressed beyond belief and they just did, you know, random shit to his body, hit it, hit his knees with hammers or whatever, and he thought he was better. Leeching. You're right, because he was working like 100 hours a week and, I, I don't know, would just pass out? I, I, I feel like he should have joined a union or something. Yeah, and like he didn't really slow down after his surgery. And I think a part of this was that he understood that his, for whatever reason, other than the fact that he was smart, his voice had a lot of power. So when he spoke about something, like people listened. So like, for example, he wrote a public recommendation to require control of contagious disease for plants and... The next year, the state of New York enacted uh, yellows and black knot prevention law. So, like, he said something and the state was like, oh, we're going to go do that now. And, like, I, I don't know of any human in American history that had th- that could wield that kind of power. Not without a boatload of blood money. True. Yeah. Just just normal shit. Enacting laws because he said it's a good idea. One can only dream. One can only dream. Yeah, and I think it's hard to not take advantage of that when you know it's for like the public good and you have that capacity. So like in 1894, this bill called the Nixon Bill was passed. And what it did was provide uh, a lot of resources for things like large-scale horticultural extension work. And, you know, unsurprisingly, Bailey was at the center of it. Now, money was available for things like general plant research and for farmer education. Much of the research was guided by Bailey, and it went across the board from poplars to cabbage and like literally any other plant you can think of in between, right? It was a pretty wide scope of what he was interested in researching, unsurprisingly. Now, the courses themselves that he was designing for the extension school uh, were designed for like winter months when farmers would be slow to give them like access to new research and techniques that like during the, the growing year they wouldn't have time for. Cornell's extension school would go on to be a model for the rest of the country based on what he designed. Additionally, part of the funding for this also went towards like forestry resources, and Cornell ended up being the first university with a forestry program. The program was a separate college that was for forestry, which Bailey disagreed with because he wanted to work with tree crops and now was outside of his like domain, so to speak. This is something that will continue to come up as he becomes more invested in this idea of like permanent agriculture. But uh, we should we should probably take just a, a, a little break for for the brains to absorb all the things he did. Yeah. And I think Norm's got to get a word in because you mentioned Robert T. Morris and he's just been going on a freaking rant. Oh, my God. You know, Norm, always giving 100% when it comes to giving a good nut. Ba-dump. Howdy. Hello. Hang on. Let me let me try that again. <clears throat> Hello, skeleton army. That's aggressive. Yeah. I'm Angel Luna. I'm Nash Flynn. Welcome to Death and Friends. We're two comedians with a podcast. It's very original of us. Quiet, you. 
It is a history tour about everyone's final destination. As an academic... Nerd. I have a PhD. I almost sort of have a... Kind of have a PhD. Anyway, I've researched a lot of death history. And also, I'm here. We'll talk about ways we die, ways we get buried, and ways we get remembered. And we even make some friends along the way. Huh? Is it a comedy podcast about death? Or a death history podcast that's funny? We have no idea. Mm, look, death can be tricky to talk about. And even though we're talking about it a lot. <laughs> Just please know, in fact, remember that you are loved, you matter, and if you don't want to be your own friend, we will happily be your friend. Put me in your top eight, baby. Join us and listen to Death and Friends. Become a member of the Skeleton Army. Like right now. Do it. It's mandatory. Go on. Subscribe. Hit the button. Mm -hmm. Yep. You can say it. Did yep. you do it? Yes? Okay, good. Okay. Love you. Love you. Death and Friends Podcast. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Death? Well, that was fun, depending who you ask. Yeah, very important predicate, depending on who you ask. We don't even know if it was Norm. Dom's the only one who knows. Dom has all the power. Truly. Yeah, right. <laughs> now back to the Nixon bill. While it was designed to do things like educate farmers and fund plant research, it also directed money to um, inspire younger generations to have an interest in farming because, you know, rural communities have been getting hollowed out like they are today. This has been a, a very long trajectory of hollowing out of the rural communities, right? And part of this is because of poor working conditions, poor money in the farming industry, and industrialization giving people other alternatives to agriculture. Now, Bailey, alongside a woman named Anna Botsford Comstock, traveled across New York State to share basic courses for elementary school kids around the fundamentals of plants. Oh, yeah, with all that free time that Bailey had. Exactly. He was just like, you know what? I don't have enough to do. I'm going to go hop in my buggy and travel around New York State and teach six-year-olds about plants instead of be the most brilliant botanist that's ever lived. I just pictured him teaching a class, getting on a bus, passing out, and just waking up at another school and just doing it again. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we'll fix this when we get home. As long as he keeps waking up on schedule, we're good. Yeah. Whistle stop campaign tour. Yeah. <laughs> plant education. Yes. Uh, now, like everything that Bailey was involved with, the program was successful. It was so successful that eventually they had four full-time teachers just to travel the state for Cornell. And um, they developed a full curriculum on plant science that they basically shared across the state. Anna Comstock would later be recognized as an this is not me saying this. It is the way it was phrased. One of the 12 greatest living women of the 1890s because of her 800-page uh, collection of leaflets made for the program. Why 12? Don't know. That's what they decided on. The big 12. The big 12. The yeah. one, two. There was a big drop-off from 12 to 13 and all the other billions of women that have ever lived. So just rounded it up. Fuck them women. Just, just yeah. rounded it up to a dozen, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. And the program was so successful that it inspired what Bailey called uh, an entire generation of nature studiers. Bailey described the program uh, as, I'll give you his quote, to take the things at hand in endeavors to understand them without reference to the systematic order or relationships of the objects. It is wholly informal and unsystematic, the same as the object are which one sees. It simply trains the eye and the mind to see and to comprehend the common things in life. And the result is not directly the acquirement of science, but the establishment of a living sympathy with everything that is. Okay, so what I said earlier about his third eye being open and he's pledged to Thomas, that rings true. Dude was one with nature. We finally know the truth. Yeah. And this will come out later when he's writing in his retirement and he gets really into like nature philosophy. So like you can start to see it kind of come out a little bit here. Given that it was the late 1800s, uh, what made this program unique was that it also included boys and girls, which again, there wasn't a lot of female education at this time. So this was pretty progressive of this, this project. Alongside the growth of this program and the replication of the program across the nation, the food system in America began to shift as these kids would like go home to their family and be like, hey, guess what I learned at school today? So you've got these kids learning stuff through this you know, child education program. You've got their parents going to these extension schools. And then you've got 
and we haven't talked about it yet, we've got these other programs that are for women as well to build an education around like home gardening. So they're trying to address the need for education around food and ecology from like every angle so that something sticks when these people go home. And the long-term consequences that was that over the next decade, these industries around like fruit production, vegetable farms, and so on, they all started to finally grow for the first time in generations, decades. They also started to show better profits too. So like you have this win-win of more farms that are doing better. Of the newsletter that Bailey and Spotsford put together, they had over 50,000 subscribers by 1900. I mean, sounds like it worked. Uh, yeah, but were they selling the petrochemical-laden programs that started the food system we have now, or were they different? Uh, they, yes and no. So to an Classic. extent, yeah. This fucking it, guy. I swear I to know. God. I, I made it like an episode and a half without a yes and no, all right? That's this, true. That is like cold turkey for me. No doing well. All right? He was having withdrawals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to an extent it was because they were talking about applying new technologies and techniques. But some of those were just like around understanding things like breeding and what new crops were available. So they were using technologies that today we would be like, oh, you're going down this rabbit you know, road you're not going to be happy about. But at the time they didn't fully understand some of those things. But a lot of it was just basic like understanding of botany and, you know, chemistry and soil science. So it wasn't it wasn't so cut and dry. Bailey continued to focus on education. And this is like a running theme throughout the permanent agriculture movement is the overlaps of education, especially youth education and farmer education versus like academia education. He decided that in 1896, he'd be re- releasing a, another series of bulletins. And the fundamental goal of these would be to not release any new information, but rather translate information to farmers. So it wasn't about like continuing to like improve our knowledge, it was about making knowledge accessible. A lot of these bulletins were going to be drawn from like much more complex works. And the first one that he'd be referring to was F.H. King's The Soil, which we talked about two weeks ago. This would be part of what he called the rural science series. Now, we talked about King, we talked about how he's the father of soil science, but it wasn't just me that thought so. Bailey valued King's work so much that he wrote the preface to King's book, The Soil. Okay, shameless plug, we did an episode on F.H. King earlier, so go check it out, because the Faw King is back. So these bulletins would go on to stretch over 7,800 pages before they were done. They expanded to include reading courses on farming, not just for youth and farmers, but as I said before, their wives as well, with up to 6,000 women enrolled at its peak. It was clear that the goal of this wasn't necessarily to teach technical knowledge, but rather, in his words, awaken the pupil's interest in the things with which he lives. I mean, that's just efficient teaching. If you can get someone interested in it, they're going to go and do it themselves. Yeah, so he's breaking in from... The philosopher standpoint, uh, the spiritual standpoint, and he's basically just living that guru life now. While having the technical expertise that like no one else has. So he's like the triple threat. He can do all of the above. <laughs> the big three. The big three. Yeah, that sounds like a viable cult candidate. It does, doesn't it? And he's got the two initial I mean, first name. Like, come on. We could cult start of it. Bailey, dude. We, yeah, I'm, I'm writing it down, Matt. And then we have Nectar of Bailey, which is just Bailey's. <laughs> We have to make a, what's it called? Overlapping circles. Bailey and Bailey's Venn diagram? Mm -hmm. Venn diagram. There we go. Bailey and Bailey's. Kept wanting to say Socratic diagram. I was like, nope, that's not right. Venn. Oh. Uh, (laughs) Walter Venn Michaels. All right. That was a niche joke. So in 1903, Bailey was. What do you mean? What do I mean? The Walter Venn Michaels or. Andy's ADD is showing. Just let it go. Real bad. I, let me free flow. It'll it'll be ugly, but we'll get through it all together. Okay. Um, so in 1903, Bailey had a new job opportunity. He was offered the position of dean at the College of Agriculture and uh, the position of director at the experimental station at Cornell. Part of the reason he was hesitant to take it was because he thought it would pull him away from his research. I mean, I'm kind of surprised at this point he didn't just say like plants 
need four more hours in the day. So now we're going to 32 hours. That would have helped him out. And I just, what's the big deal? I don't know. Yeah, seriously. This, if anyone deserved it, I think. The four- to work more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just thought about how long my work wait, my work day would be if we went to a 32 hour day. And that's depressing. <laughs> how did, how did you get from 24 to 32? 24 plus four is 32. Isn't it? It's 28. Oh, sorry, 28. Oh, my God. There's not 28 hours in the day? Not yet. It might okay. feel like it. So 20, 20, I don't know where 28 came from. It was in my head. You mean 32? I think I was thinking- Oh, my of... God, God. <laughs> uh, not, yeah, we're going going in a bad place. I'm talking Anyways. about the original 28 that I added the four hours to. I honestly thought no, there was 28 okay. hours in the day. <laughs> That's too many hours. I don't want to be alive that long. Um. Anyway, so just that that is tempting. Less days, less mornings. So he did take the position. He said he was going to do it for a decade. Then he was going to retire. So he was like, "Fine, fuck it, I'll do it. Ten years. That's all you get." Now his first focus was he wanted to raise money. He knew he had the voice. He knew he'd get the money. So he was like, "You know what? We need new buildings." need to develop new programs around things like livestock to get this agricultural program off the ground. Let's kick the shit in a high gear. And um, he did so. He he got a bunch of funding from private sources, uh, expanded his experimental sites. There were quickly, they moved up to 300 experimental sites over 44 counties in his first year. So like Ooh. it just exploded because of course. Within that decade that he was the dean, the program faculty grew from 9 to 104. The student population grew from 252 to 2,305. And the course offerings went from 25 to 224. Faculty of 9 to 100 is insane. Yeah, the dude, just everything he touched, like fucking gold. And the whole point was to make agriculture and horticulture more appreciated and understood across the country. He didn't care about making money for the school. He wanted the program to be good and to have the resources to continue to be good. During his the same time, he basically, like again, to speak to how powerful he, his name was, he single-handedly strong-armed politicians into funding a state college of agriculture at Cornell in 1904. He got them to appropriate $250,000 for the development of new buildings, which was like $20 million today. He asked for support from the state legislature, which he somehow got himself in a room with a bunch of them. And basically, he got laughed out of the room. One of the men asked him how much he was drinking uh, when he asked for the request. And Bay was like, you know what? Fuck you. He still got the money, even though the legislature, which had to approve it, thought it was a joke. So Liberty Hyde Bailey was better at managing the Senate than the fucking Senate. Man, bring him back, please. Bring, bring, bring Bailey back. back. Is that our bumper sticker? I think, bring well, Bailey I think back. this is a development of a cult is that we're waiting for the second coming of, of Bailey. LHB. LHB. Yeah. Yes. What, what can you spoil it? And what well, I guess we'll decide the symbol at the end when we find out how he died. Oh. It's not going to be exciting, oh. unfortunately. Did he die or did they just cryogenically freeze this guy? Because he seems he like- He might be still alive. We don't know. That's my theory. <laughs> frozen head or something. He's running on the- pure willpower. Yeah. But like, seriously, though, in one of the one of the professors that worked with him was this guy named Charles Barnes. And this is an, a quote from him. He said, Professor Bailey is a living disproof of the doctrine that overproductiveness is at the expense of the quality of the fruit. Yep. Beyond superhuman. He was Robus Cop. Get it? Like Rubus, Blackberries, Elliot Laugh. I hate that I do get it. Don't make me hate plants, Andy. You're undoing a century of Bailey's work. Please. I mean, you're asking somebody who thought there was 28 hours in the day to get a, <laughs> a, a deep Latin joke. Like, come on, man. Come on. You're the Robocop guy that I haven't watched it at some point. You guys you haven't watched Robocop. any he, Robocop? He, no, one, he, in, one and two, man. Just watch him. No, I refuse at this. Which point. is the one where the like the never mind. I'm not going to describe a movie scene on a podcast because that's boring. I've already done that enough. I know exactly what scene. I know exactly what scene you're talking about. The radioactive waste guy walking out in the sh- in the street. <laughs> oh no! Because that's the funniest scene to me. I laugh every time. Like I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. 
Anyways, uh, now, if you haven't figured out, the challenge of us doing this episode is that he's, like, always involved in, like, multiple concurrent projects about entirely different things. So, like, we just covered, like, a decade of him being a dean, right? But, like, he was also doing other stuff at the same time. He was building this program. He was speaking at meetings across the country about plants. He was trying to figure out the idea of plant plasticity before the terminology existed. He was like describing the plant, saying that they followed these tendencies based on necessity and that the development of the plant's attributes was like a mix of hereditary traits as well as like a reaction to environmental factors. So like he understood it before they had the science for it because he was extrapolating from this idea of evolution that was still like largely accepted, but still like very topically understood. But he he knew it was there and they had to figure out how to like tease all this out. And he basically was frustrated that he was spending time doing everything else instead of that, even though he was, like, passionate about all of his things. Man. So 32 hours is where I'm going with that. Well, it's surprising because if this is uh, just a few short years previously, this guy would have been called the witch and probably put on trial. Yeah. Thoughts like that only come from someone that's spending so much time looking at plans. <laughs> yeah, he like I don't know if you guys remember, but like one of the first things he wanted to do when he went to Michigan Agricultural College as a working there, he was like, I want to study a plant from the second it germinates to its death. I want to document every second of it. So that's what I was going to say. That's where the fainting spells came from. This guy was literally outside at night staring at plants, trying to make sure he didn't miss anything. He was pa <laughs> he was passing out because he was up for three days. I want whatever Liberty Hyde Bailey was smoking then. Yes. It's like that, meth in a, a joint. <laughs> Tell me there's a Colombian connection here yeah. somewhere. Oh, there is. We're getting there. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, like I, like I said, th this idea of like evolution was understood, but there is still so much science to be done to back it up. And like what what came from it? What do you what kind of became the material thing that he put together based on his like understanding of plant plasticity was that um things like plant categorizing were like at this time and you could argue even still today unnecessarily convoluted in many ways and in many ways inaccessible bailey had been aware of this issue since he was like a college student and uh while doing all the other shit we've been talking about, he was also working on this book called The Cyclopedia of American Horticulture, which would eventually span four volumes and revolutionize horticulture and even the nomenclature, and it's used in botany around cultivated plants. Now, being Bailey, after he released it in 1901, he then immediately went to go work on The Cyclopedia of American Agriculture, which was released eight years later. Well, Dean. Correct. While also doing the public outreaching thing in like New York. Correct. While also doing his own research on plants. Correct. He was doing all of the things is the point here. Unlike Bailey, we do need to take a break. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. Welcome back, everyone. I hope y'all could catch your breath because Bailey could not. I breathe because Bailey couldn't. <laughs> I've been holding my breath waiting, I don't know, for the next piece of information that this guy really did stay up for 32 hours straight. Man, you're going to love his retirement era. He like goes so off the edge. It's great. <laughs> but we're not there yet. We're, we have to back up a little bit. Backing up. Not physically, Elliot. Okay, I'm getting closer to the mic. No oh God. Uh, all right, so Bailey was always doing multiple things. And like I said, it kind of makes it hard to kind of track it all if you try to do it chronologically. I'd mentioned that like the 1890s was kind of Bailey's decade. He was talking about fruit pollination and growing the ag program, not as Dean. 
and writing a bunch and working on his educational outreach stuff. But another thing that he did that was like really important to like the trajectory of plant science was he released his paper in 1892 and it was about crossbreeding and hybridizing. And in it, he cited Gregor Mendel's now famous plant hybrids, which had been written nearly 30 years before and had basically never been cited or sourced or like no one cared about it. And because of Bailey's work using it and a few other folks that were like, oh, holy shit, look at this thing Bailey found. There's a lot of respect and research that were starting to develop around hybridization. If you recall from the first episode, hybridizing plants had been kind of like the farmer thing because they're too stupid to be like doing real science around plants. And um, because of this work, the federal government started to have an interest in this idea of like improving yields through hybridization. They started releasing money for it. And because of his paper, Mendel is now a name that basically everyone knows. Oh, man. He really put him in the history books, huh? Yeah, he found him and was like, hey, this guy did something important. Mm -hmm. But to that idea of like hybridization. So while he was dean of the Agricultural College, this thing called the Adams Act was passed in 1906. The point of it was to back preliminary studies and things like genetics and specifically hybridization, which they understood as a concept, but not there wasn't a whole lot of actual science behind it. A lot of this research was the basis for like a massive leap forward in education around like plant pathology, which also was something Bailey cared about. And he actually demanded that they created a new chair of plant pathology at Cornell, which would become the first in the nation because of course he got it. Even though Bailey was spending all this time pushing for Cornell to be like the home of the most progressive and cutting edge agricultural and botanical science in the world. It was never really his primary concern. Of course it wasn't. That sounds like a L.H. Bailey side quest. Yeah. Side quest indeed. His primary concerns were, in his words, and quote, the greatest problems of American agriculture are the relations of the industry to economic and social life in general, end quote. So basically, he understood that fixing farming didn't mean just making farmers money, that fixing farming meant saving the communities which farmers lived within. Things like the Grange, which we're going to talk about quickly in a couple of weeks, and this idea of like making community in rural spaces. And the idea is that like, if there's no societal health, it doesn't matter if you save farming in terms of like profitability, as we've seen today. Now, Bailey was worried that if farming was saved through policymaking without protecting the communities which farmers lived within, it would basically have disastrous effects on rural communities across the country, including things like feeling isolationism or isolation and hyper individualization. So, you know, nothing that ended up happening. You know, when people wonder why rural communities breed fascism, this was like before fascism had a name. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and what's frustrating is that clearly people in power were being made aware of all of this by Bailey, whose words they literally wrote laws based on. And here we are today watching the consequences of not listening to what he actually said at the time. We're watching it go by like a century later. Yeah. Like you said, the government was listening. The opportunity to like try to apply some of his beliefs and to leverage his like cultural power was kind of given some life on October 1st, 1908. He was appointed by President Teddy Roosevelt to serve as the chairman of a national commission to study and make recommendations for legislation to improve county life by, to use the president's own terminology, and quote, better business and better living. Just when he was, wasn't busy shooting Cubans or rare animals, Teddy did some good things. The big asterisk, I guess. NBD. He's no Liberty Hyde Bailey. I mean, we'll say that. Truth. Now, Bailey would uh, go on to like lead a team of folks that he picked by himself and the president to find solutions to the nation's rural issues, we'll call them. He traveled across the country, collected data, including not him personally, but his team surveying over 600,000 people. And the results of their studies were published in what was called the Report of the Commission on Country Life in 1911. Now, the weight of that book ended up like hanging over 
agriculture and rural politics for decades. It advocated for things like nationwide agricultural extension projects. And uh, in response, in 1914, the Smith-Lever Extension Act was passed to provide resources for things like cooperative agricultural extension work, which helped the colleges and the USDA worked together, and uh, that bill was something that Bailey had been consulted on repeatedly as it was developed. To the point I made before with his quote about rural communities, he wasn't simply caring about the farmer's farm. He cared about the community and more specifically what he called cooperative societies. These were kind of like a semi-religious understanding like where there are social centers um i think like while he was a religious person to him the idea of semi-religious organization didn't mean religion it meant nature it meant respecting and honoring the natural world around us and for him it meant how do we maintain a quality of life in a community that allowed rural areas to maintain their identity and more importantly their like sense of place so I think like we all understand the placelessness of the modern world. And that was a concern is how do we maintain this idea of like, I belong to this place and this history and this natural world around me. And for him, the idea was the fundamental problem was that we had to find a way to maintain rural civilization. And to do this, we needed a new agriculture. We needed a new rural life. And the only way we could do this was through like education and propaganda. And part of this was not just the programs that he had developed, but also reforming things like high school agricultural education. And this included like developing curriculum for schools that would be developed uh, over the early 20th century, including uh, the agricultural high school that Russell Lord would graduate from only a few years later in 1911, who we'll be talking about in a few weeks. Bailey walked so the Lord could run. Nice. <laughs> so... Was propaganda your term or was this Liberty Hyde Bailey's? And was it propaganda in the sense that we think of today? By the deed. Or was it just like, you know, 1800s marketing? That was a term that his biographer used. Now, what's interesting is that he his biographer actually started writing his biography while he was alive. And um, a good chunk of it is actually just from interviews with Bailey himself. So who knows? Now, in 1913, Bailey, as promised, stepped down as the dean of the New York State College of Agriculture. The year after he retired, the students of the college gave this big memorial to Bailey, and they said that, in quote, without a doubt, he was the most useful man that American agriculture ever produced, NBD. And when he retired, his response was that he really wanted to dedicate his retirement to writing and studying plants, and in his words, in quote, in earnest. Okay, so we're about to see what he accomplishes when he's not distracted with bureaucracy, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's just warming up. He's like 55, <laughs> and he's like, my life, I finally got to figure it out. You're, you guys ready for when I have no kids I'm responsible for, no job, I can do whatever I want? Uh, <laughs> two years into retirement, he published this book called The Holy Earth, and it was a naturalist philosophy that aligned his view of the relations between the earth and us humans and what he thought our job and our responsibility and our place is within on the earth. Basically, unsurprisingly, he basically articulated that we need to have a, a simpler and deeper rooted relationship with the soil and the things that came from the soil. As he got older, he often wrote about like a slower way of living, uh, which might seem like a direct contrast to like the accelerating process of science at the time, but he saw it as the science can evolve, but our relationship should go slow. So research fast, act slow. I got it. Bailey used a lot of his time to travel as well. And uh, only five years after F.H. King published Farmers of 40 Centuries, as you guys might remember, Bailey left for China, returning in 1917 after three years overseas and a lifetime of stories beyond the scope of this work. He talked about for example, in one small Chinese village, he had to be kept in a building for like three days because the wild dogs were trying to eat him. <laughs> so just like his whole life, like his whole retirement is like that for fucking 30 years. When he came home, he wrote another book, one which was called What is Democracy? In it, he actually criticizes King's position about permanent agriculture in China. So if you guys don't recall, he talks a lot about 
uh, what subsistence farming looks like in China and how that's what the future of farming looks like here because that's the only way to be sustainable. Bailey disagrees and he argues that the state of agriculture in China has become static and in his words, in quote, with no prospect of advancement and progress for the race as a whole and no real democracy. I guess shots fired. Okay, so even though he thought Ping was a huge deal for his work on soil, he still thought he was wrong about some other stuff. That's science, baby. Now, Bailey would spend the next few years studying the plants he had uh, brought with him back from Asia. And uh, again, he was writing about the need for like better plant taxonomy. Despite the fact that he was like, yeah, I've got some plants here for a while. He was like, no, nah, I got to travel. And he went to Caracas and Trinidad. Uh, and then he came home with enough plant specimens, in his words, to, in quote, keep us busy for the next two or three years. Okay, so, so much for retirement. He went out and found some more work to do. Yeah, exactly. Despite saying he had plants to catalog for two or three years, the next year he left again, 1922, he went to Jamaica. This is where it gets fun. So he was at this hotel with his wife in Jamaica, and there's all these palm trees everywhere, right? He'd spend his whole career in the in like cold climate, so he doesn't know palm trees. And uh, his wife's like, hey, what kind of palms are these? So Bailey's like, I don't know. Like, I, I never dealt with palm trees. And she was like, I thought you were a botanist. And Bailey literally dedicates the next 20 years to, to palm trees from this and drags her across the fucking world looking at palm trees, all because she made this one fucking snarky ass comment. She knew what she was doing. She wanted to go to warm places. <laughs> oh, she she got more than she bargained for. He collects over 150 specimens of palm trees in Jamaica. Next year, they traveled to Brazil, where he brought home another 170 species of palms. Man, I'm sure she regretted that joke for like... Well, like the rest of her life. Yeah. I guess, but her tan looked great. You know what? That's Probably. true. It was all even. She was bronzed. She loved it. <laughs> so in 1935, he again went south, first to Cuba, then to Panama in search of what was considered a rare palm. And I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Raf Tidigera. Let's go with that. Rafia Tidigera. Yeah. You got yeah. it. Good job, Andy. Now, despite the downpours and the fact that they had to go off the trails and into the jungles, like they were unprotected, they went into the swamps, like literally hip deep in the swamps where there are boa constrictors and shit like that to find this tree. And mind you, he is 73 years old, dragging his 73-year-old fucking wife through the swamps in Panama, like... My mom's 70 years old. She can barely get up the stairs. Never mind climb through a fucking swamp. That's because she slept too much through her life. <laughs> yeah. She didn't have to chase two kids with no husband. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's an absolute fuck you to, I thought you were a botanist. He was like, yeah. yeah who's, the botanist? That... who's the botanist now? Just looking at her. While they're waist deep in the Brazilian, fucking... <laughs> the Brazilian Amazon. Like, where are they? Panama? Yeah, I looked so long to find this fucking picture of that palm tree because I really wanted him to have like the nerdiest dad, like two thumbs up in front of him <laughs> and her just fucking miserable. <laughs> but I could not find it. Like they, I was reading the the paper or his description of it and like they had to spend like a half hour trying to set up the tripod because it was just swamp to like take the picture. It was like a disaster. Oh my God. Yeah. Science. So he was collecting all these palm trees, traveling the world, like living his best life. He was he was Nigel Thornberry out there, like living the dream. But in the meantime, every time he came, he sure. came home, he he like, right. That's what, when you think of <laughs> Nigel Thornberry, you're like all right, yeah, that checks out. It sounds just like him. Yeah. Um, he would come home, and then he would like on top of like I gotta categorize all these plants and shit. He was putting out updated versions of his books. He was putting out new books on stuff that wasn't even palm trees. So I don't know when he was researching it. He was putting out books on like evergreens and con conifers and native blackberries, hence the Rubus Cup. His philosophy books, he was just like pounding out content. It was absurd. And around this age, when he was in his 70s, he started thinking about what he was how his estate was going to get passed on, right? So he didn't have a lot of money, but he had all these fucking plants, like a, <laughs> a shit ton of plants that like no one else on earth had. That's a, that's a good bumper sticker. I might not have money, but I got a shit ton <laughs> of plants. He decided this time it made a lot of sense to transfer the ownership of his hortarium to Cornell. 
that way it would remain protected. It wouldn't get bulldozed or something like that. And uh, his daughter, Ethel, would end up being the Horatorium's first curator. So like she got to collect the plants with her dad because she was off often traveling with her parents. And then she got to like go take care of them when they were gone. We are running out of time, and I kind of hinted at it before. This dude should have died on so many of these fucking trips. We talked about like China, where he was like being protected from dogs. We talked about the swamps that he got he was wandering around in in the middle like of nowhere where like disease was rampant. At one point, he got lost at sea with some dude. Like, there was three of them on a boat, and the guy, the captain of the boat, like, disconnected from them somehow. And he was left at sea overnight on some fucking raft. And, like, somehow they found him again. And then the other guy he was with wanted to kill the guy that was in charge of them. So he had to, like, keep them from killing each other. Single-handedly stopped a mutiny. No big deal. Yeah. Like, that was just... The man lived life like no one else. He was doing all this fun shit into his 80s, right? He was researching and traveling and writing and dragging his fucking wife's ass around the goddamn world. His last plant exploration trip was in 1946. He was 85 years old, going out there with a fucking machete, like clearing a path, 85 years old. Into the Amazon. Like into not, the not a nice, Amazon. Not a nice place to be. Like I feel like that's a place for like the youngsters and the spry. He's 85 chopping his way through the Amazon. <laughs> I just want to see it. Yeah, and he continued to research and write uh, well into his 90s. And uh, he passed away at a fully lived age of 96 on Christmas Day in 1954. Man, he accomplished more in his 80s than I'll probably accomplish in my entire life. Yeah, all of our lives. Yeah, combined. I'm tired. I'm tired just from listening and reading about it. And hearing about it and talking about it on this damn microphone. Yeah, it's a lot. And like, I keep saying this, but we skimmed over so much stuff because like, we did two full long episodes on this man. And like, there's so much more that we could have gone deeper into that he did. But like, we just hit like the high points, which is fucking frightening because that is just insane. I know this is unprepared, but do you have any like interesting stuff about just like misadventures i gave the big ones yeah mm-hmm. those are the big ones but yeah he he was just like living his best life he i feel like i didn't obviously don't know him but the personality that i got was he was just like one of those dudes that's always happy and like no matter what happens he's like yeah man this is gonna be great and you're like dude we are walking into the jungle with fucking malaria and he's like it's gonna be so much fun I just picture him identifying plants turning and giving you that crazy smile. Like, isn't that neat? And it's like, dude, we're lost and we don't have any more fresh water. The fucking spider <laughs> on his face. Yeah. Man. So, yeah, maybe that, maybe, that was him. maybe we'll table this for um, when we pitch Netflix. We could do like a Forrest Gump type movie, True. but it's just Liberty Hyde Bailey. Although I'm not filming on location, so maybe it's a cartoon. <laughs> That'd probably save on the budget. Yeah. So, yeah, like, Bailey was obviously monumental for, like, all the plant science shit he did, the discoveries, the writing, the research, the academics. But for him, and what makes for our podcast him significant is, like, the way that he ties, like, this idea of, like, social health into our food system and how that plays into the natural world around us, right? How he made it, like, a religion or, well, semi-religion, I guess. Yeah, and he was, like, one of the first white dudes to, like, talk about native plants with reverence. He was the first person to ever write a book about native plants in North America. That's significant. He was like, this is something that somebody should be writing about, and I'm not too big for it. This is that important. At the same time, he, like, tries to suggest a radical alternative to the way that we were living across, like, a whole bunch of fronts, the way urban communities need to reconnect with native plants, the way rural communities need to reconnect with their identities. Uh, There's just so much going on here. Now, next week, we're going to be uh, jumping into the story of another major figure in permanent agriculture. And that one's going to be one that's probably more popular, if not the most popular of all the ones we'll be talking about. And that's J. Russell Smith. Yeah, who, like Bailey, we see a lot of these overlaps of education, ecology, native plants, agriculture, and like tying it into like one grand narrative. Man, I'm excited. Yeah, he's got another double initial, J.R. Smith. So obviously he's a big deal because 
seems to be a running theme this season. Smith Jr. Smith Jr. So what what are we doing about this bumper sticker, Matt? Wait, what did we decide on? You said you wanted to wait till you knew how he died. Oh, well, yeah. That on Christmas cult. Day. Yeah. <laughs> That's, Santa Bailey. They just die of old age. <laughs> I mean, he that'd did. be a great. That'd be a great way to just Santa Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We could. Can we, we just could, like get that could, dubbed over the song, like <laughs> repeatedly, Dom? Santa Bailey. <laughs> it's done. All right, guys. Uh, so if you want to hear Jay Russell Smith, it is up now. At least part one is up now on Patreon. So go check that out. If you want to see all of the writing on Bailey, because I skimmed over some of it, you go check out our sub stack. It's all there. It's like 25 pages. So, you know, just sit down and have yourself a cup of joe or lock yourself in the basement for a few days. Yeah. Think about how much of a failure you are compared to Bailey. I'm just picturing the bickering between Bailey and his wife in the middle of the Amazon. <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, what a botanist know about Kindiru? And she's like, what's that? And she explains that. And it, it's just horrified, horrifying being in the water in the Amazon. Like, it's my nightmare. I don't, I want to see it, but I just don't want to be there. You know what I mean? He's like, ooh, look, wonder what kind of eel that is. Many of them around here can eat a human whole. In seconds, they just strip the flesh from the bone. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Man. Who's the botanist now? Who's the botanist now? That's, Say that's it. Scre- <laughs> screaming in the middle of the Amazon, yeah. dude. <laughs> yeah. Jumping uh. onto the little island to get away from the alligator. Um, who's the botanist now? It's probably a good bumper sticker, too. That's a great bumper sticker. That's it. That's what we got out of this episode. Who's the botanist now? Yeah. Yep. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. That's what I'm here for. And if you'd like... like <laughs> If you'd like to listen to more, check out our <laughs> catalog. Check out our catalog because it is Great getting long, man. and the list is getting longer. True. Mm. <laughs>